I'm Heather Darcy. I'm very excited to be here today. And one thing that I would like for you to know about me that I don't think a lot of people realize is that I'm actually a historian of German history. So I am a Tudor adjacent historian. I'm delighted to have Heather Darcy join us to give us the German perspective on Anna of Cleves. Hello and welcome. Today I am joined and I'm thrilled to be joined by Heather Darcy, someone that many of us are familiar with. And if you're not, you will be glad to have met her and learn from her a part of the Tudor story that you may not know very much about yet. So I'm thrilled to have Heather here. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you so much. Now, Heather is also joined, I'll just mention, she always um, has her bird sort of backup group with her. She has three parrots. So if you hear something in the background, they are simply chiming into the conversation. So don't be surprised. We're delighted to have them as well. (laughs) So I know that Heather is a German historian. So can you tell us, please, a little bit about what brought you into the Tudor component of your interest in history? It was really just reading repeatedly that Anna of Cleves was unattractive. And so that's why Henry got rid of her. And I figured that because she was 24 when she moved to England, that there was probably just in general a bit more to her life story or maybe more information about her lurking in Germany somewhere because the only other foreign Tudor queen that Henry had was Catherine of Aragon, but she was about 15 when she moved to England. So she was much younger than Anna, but that's really what got it started. All right. And I noticed right off the start, you are teaching us something already. Her actual name is Anna, not Anne. And that has become very anglicized. But if you look at her signatures, in, while she was in England, it was always Anna. Is that correct? It depends. I think There's one signature. We only have a couple examples of her signature, but one of them, when she signed as Anne the Queen, she did anglicize it. But when she would write home, she would write as Anna. Oh, okay. That's a really interesting distinction um, for her two audiences, the English audience and her family audience. So that's really interesting. And I really do um, appreciate the way you refer to her as Anna. Now, one of the first um, encounters I had with your research was on a pretty basic question, which is what is the date of birth of Anna of Cleves? And even that has some um, different opinions about it. So can you share your research and how you uncovered her real birthday? Yes. So when I was researching my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, I had found out about a contemporaneous primary source that had been transcribed from the old German into modern German. And then I believe it was in the 1980s by an historian named Arun Mim. And I don't think he's with us anymore, but he transcribed it. So I got a hold of this and it covers the time period from 1505 to late 1517. And it's thought that the um, chronicler was, I think it actually might even be into the 1490s. But anyway, the active part of his writing really took place between, I think, about 1510 and 1517. 
And when I got this book, I was so excited because this is somebody that was alive when Anna was born and her siblings were born and lived in the Duchy of Cleves. And so I was able to, I was very much looking forward to reading this book. And so I immediately flipped to the September 1515 date and there is nothing about Anna's birth. Hmm. And so I went and I looked at the birth date for Zabilla and she was in there and her brother Wilhelm was in there. Unfortunately, the chronicler died, they think, of plague before Anna's little sister Amalia was born. He died maybe a month or two or at least stopped writing and then presumably died before Amalia was born. So her date of birth was not was not in there. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe they just didn't announce Anna's birth because she was a second, a second daughter. And so I started reading through the entire year of 1515. And lo and behold, she was born June 28th of 1515. And it's right there in the chronicle. And then on top of that, in the 19th century, you have this coalition of German historians, qualified trained German historians, who created the uh, the uh, Bergisches Geschichtsverein, which specialized in the history of the the Berg territory or the Duchy of Berg, which was of course part of the United Duchies of, in English without the accent, Juliers, Cleves, Berg, or Julich Kleferberg. And all of their secondary, so these are secondary sources, but they're looking at primary primary sources. They give a range. It's between July 28th and about July 12th. But no matter what, it is not September. The other thing I found is there was a second person who was not a qualified historian who was writing it around the same time as this coalition of historians. Mm-hmm. And that's where the September birth date comes from. And what I'm what I think happened is that that might have been the date that Anna was publicly baptized was in September of 1515 and that this person just misunderstood what they were looking at. And then, um, what's her name? The lady from the 19th century, Agatha. Uh, Agnes Agnes Strickland. Strickland. Agnes Strickland. Yeah. She, I think that she might have gotten a hold of that source, but frankly, with all of her editions of her books, there's not a real source given that gives any date of birth for Anna. So my best guess of why, or how she came up with that September date of birth was she read this resource by this person who was not a qualified historian mm-hmm. that gave the wrong date of birth. Okay, okay. But there are several sources that give it either at the 28th of June or in the next few days, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. The one primary source that we do have gives it as June 28th. Okay. And then the other sources that we, secondary sources written by qualified historians who mm-hmm. were able to look at the original documents, some of which no longer exist due to war, mm-hmm. give it that date range of being in late June to early July. The other okay. thing we have to look at is like her mother's obstetric history because her brother Wilhelm was born in late July of 1516. And so if Anna were born in late September, her mother wouldn't have had time to first of all recover from the birth secondly, be able to conceive, and thirdly, have a healthy baby boy. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I I love the very logical way that plays out, right? <laughs> so you can really track it. Um, and the idea of those initial contemporary sources and then this group that was using contemporary sources, you know, even if it's a, a range from late, Ju- late June to early July, that makes sense at the time, but that really does place it nicely. And I think it's a really good indicator 
to us, some of us, and I'm just going to say me because I can't pronounce. I'm going to ask you to pronounce all of the German names we need pronounced because it sounds beautiful when you say them. But I cannot read German. And so I would need someone who could, like these historians who could look at the records and give us these real dates. And, and that's just a clue of how much we can learn from going to the German sources when we are, after all, talking about a person who was born there and who spent 24 years. I mean, she spent a good portion of her life there. And that's one thing I'd like to talk about. So I, I know you mentioned the duchies and the consolidation of different duchies and all of that. Can you tell us a little bit about her parents, how they came, you know, to their position and what it meant to be in a duchy. That's just a, a term we may not be familiar with today. We don't have a lot of duchies around here. So <laughs> what what was a duchy and how did they, you mentioned a coalition of duchies, how did they combine with each other? And, and so how do her parents sort of come together and what does that represent? So I'll answer what I think is the first part of the question. The, a duchy or a duchy is what a duke or a prince rules. And in what we think of as Germany, there were over 200 of these. So there's 200 German princes running around. And then you have electors, which are above the princes. And I'm not going to get super into the whole structure of the nobility system in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, which is now predominantly Germany. But a duke would be in charge of a duchy. Anna's, both of her grandparents, grandfathers were dukes. So it, by 1490, 1490, late, late 1480s, early 1490s, Anna's maternal grandfather hadn't actually had any children yet at this point. Or if it's 1490, I think her mom might have just been born or her father was, or her mother, her grandmother was pregnant with her mother, something like that. But they wanted to consolidate the territories because Julich and Berg, which comes from her mother's side, and Cleves, Mark, from her father's side, are right next to each other, more or less. Okay. So the two dukes, Duke John II, who is Anna's paternal grandfather, and Duke William, get together and decide, okay, Duke John, if you have a son, or I think actually Johann might have been born by then, your son will marry my child if my child is a girl. And if my child's a boy, then your daughter, if you have one, will marry my son. Okay. So, so our children will marry. Yes. So then by 1495, we have Johann, Anna's father, is alive. And we have Maria, her mother, is alive. So then there's a marriage treaty created in the mid-1490s. And they get married in 1510. And part of this, the purpose of this treaty, too, was because Duke William did have an illegitimate son. And so they were also trying to kind of keep him out of it because he didn't have a real claim to it. Okay. Anyway, they get married in 1510. Their children are born. Anna's paternal grand, or excuse me, maternal grandfather, the Duke of Ulichenberg, dies in 1513. So then her father, by right of being married to Maria, becomes the titular Duke of Ulichenberg. And then when the other grandfather dies in 1521, Anna's father becomes the Duke of Cleves, Duke of Ulich, Duke of Berg, and in charge of all these different territories. And then they actually enact legislation that creates 
the united duchies of Jülich Kleifeberg that unites all these territories together. Okay. Okay. All right. So I appreciate that. That sort of walks us through. So their children then, and in particular, Anna's brother, would be the inheritor of this combined duchies, right? This combination. The united duchies. Okay. All right. Do we know much? uh, So that's that's really helpful. Do we know much about um, how how the children got along with each other, how they got along with their parents. I just want to get a sense of Anna and her family before she comes to England, because I think we meet her partway through her life and we need to meet her earlier. So what do we know about her relationship with her parents, for example? Not a whole lot. She would have grown up in the Frauenzimmer, which literally means the ladies' room, but it can also refer to the women's... It's a shadow court of the male court, but it can also refer to all of the women who live in the Frauenzimmer. So she would have lived there with her sisters, with her brother until he was seven and started his formal education and any other young, young boys about court, and with her mother and her any female cousins that she had that were invited to court. And we don't have a lot, we don't have any direct information about her other than in a letter that her elder sister, Zabilla, wrote to Zabilla's husband. She talks about getting mad at her sister when they were little and throwing a pair of scissors at her and scarring her forehead. (laughs) So all of that, what I can tell you is from looking at what we do have, particularly when all of the children are adults, it would appear that all three of the Fondamach girls were very feisty. Well, it's always nice to hear about those feisty women. Now, I know that Anna has some connections to English royalty even before she goes to England to marry Henry VIII. So can you tell us a little bit about her descent from the English royal family? Yes, like I believe the rest of Henry VIII's queens, if we go all the way back to the 13th century, Anna is descended from Edward I. So Edward I and his wife, Eleanor of Castile, had Margaret, the Duchess of Brabant, or she became the Duchess Consort of Brabant. So through that line, they wind up marrying into, or her family winds up marrying into, Edward the first family, of course, we have to go down till the end of the, the 14th, early 15th century when Marie of Burgundy, not to be confused with Maximilian the first wife, Mary of Burgundy, but another <laughs> woman named Marie of Burgundy marries Adolf, the first Duke of Cleves. And that's on his, let me think, great, great grandfather. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really interesting because her sense, and of course she did grow up in Germany, but there is a sense of the intermarriage among all of these royal families throughout Europe. And it just kind of all comes down in a really fascinating way. So thank you for that. I love that. I love that idea. Now, what do we know? I know we know a little bit about her relationship with her sister, just that that little moment What about her relationship with her brother? What do we know about that? Anything or? A little bit. She really liked rubbing it in his face that she was going to be a queen of a whole country where he he was just a prince of a couple of 
duchies in Germany. (laughs) Beyond that, he did care about her. He did try to, he was interested in having her come back after he found out about the annulment. He did try to help her find a German husband later on, but that, that fell through. He sent her gifts and she sent him a gift when he married his second wife. So they, they seemed to, at least on the surface, they seem to care about each other. But as far as, it, it's just hard to, to really know because we don't have a lot of letters left over from her. Okay. Most of her writing, if not all of her writing, after the annulment was reviewed before she sent it. And any writing that she got or letter that she received from her family or anyone in Germany was reviewed before she received it to make sure it didn't contain anything of political interest or intrigue. But it is nice to think of them, you know, exchanging gifts and being, you know, friendly with each other, sort of not completely cut off once she was in England. And I want to talk a little bit about the religion because I have read some very firm statements about her religion that, of course, disagree with each other, right? Because, you know, people don't really know how she felt. But the um, the notion was, or at least part of the story that we've often heard, was that that marriage between Henry VIII and Anna of Cleves was made, at least in part, to provide England greater security in the reform, what well, wasn't yet Protestant, but the reform church arena and some support against Spain and France, these great Catholic nations. But that doesn't necessarily um, look, when you look more closely, it's not quite as straightforward as that. Is that right? It's not like Cleves was this hugely Protestant area. So what can you tell us about the religion and the family? Because the family, I believe, had some differences of religion right within Anna's family. The notion that Henry and Anna were married to provide security against the more Catholic nations is correct. But the avenue down which it goes is incorrect, usually. So Anna's father was very interested in taking a via media, a a middle way towards religion. And there was a lot of legislation. I think one came out in 1525 and another one came out in around 1532, where effectively he didn't ban Lutherans, but he just didn't want to hear about it. He didn't want it being preached. He didn't want pamphlets being spread about things like that, but he wasn't going to openly persecute them. Her parents were both very, very Catholic. Now, her older sister, Zabilla, marries Johann Friedrich of Saxony, the elector of Saxony, and it was Johann Friedrich's uncle who protected Martin Luther. And to this day, Johann Friedrich is remembered as being, martyr is too strong of a word, but being a, a, a hero, shall we say, of Lutheranism. And he created the Schmalkaldic League with Philip of Hesse, I think in the early 1530s, and it's sometimes called the Protestant League in English. and the hope was that by Henry marrying Johann Friedrich's sister-in-law, Anna of Cleves, that Henry could become a member of the Schmalkaldic League and have that support. Now, unfortunately, Johann Friedrich wasn't super keen on the marriage between Anna and Henry because Henry was still too traditionally Catholic. Because as we were saying before, 
Henry was interested in reforming the church, not creating a totally new religion and in in being, you know, Protestant. We really don't see that until his son, Edward VI, becomes king. Right. But Johann Friedrich didn't like that. And so he put a moratorium on allowing new members into the Schmalkaldic League. Okay. Was that specifically, do you think, Henry? I mean, was that aimed at keeping Henry himself out? There will never be a smoking gun that directly says that. But I don't know of any other reason why why Johann Friedrich would have done that. Okay, okay, that's that's really interesting. Okay, great. Now, what about do we know about Anna and Wilhelm in particular? So we, I, I'm guessing Sibylle was with her husband, or do we even yes. that may or may not be the case? Okay. Yes. But what about Anna and William? Do we, Wilhelm, do we know um, about their religion? There is no reason to think that Anna was not a Catholic, is more okay. what it down to. There's, she was raised Catholic. She went, we know she went to Mass in England. Now, whether or not she was, what the quality of her Catholicism was, that doesn't appear to be very high. She okay. and Elizabeth got in trouble for not going to Mass often enough when Mary first became queen. But she does right. appear to have been a Catholic or at least not a Lutheran. Her brother, Wilhelm, tried to uphold that via media that their father put in place. But he was always, always, always a Catholic. He did allow for some reform because he was interested in that. He did occasionally take both types of communion. But he was a Catholic. And part of that is because of his extreme defeat during the Cleves War that he had against Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. He had to agree to be a Catholic and okay. he had married a Habsburg bride and he had to agree that his sons would be raised as Catholics, which they were. But on the other hand, Amalia, the younger sister, both Amalia and Sibylla, excuse me, Sibylla were devout Lutherans. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. So this notion that there was a, a path, a political path for Henry VIII to potentially gain some support, which then didn't happen because the the avenue he went down, he was personally not reform-minded enough. But mm -hmm. even within the family, you have ardent reformer Protestant Lutherans and you have Catholics. And, and Anna's mother was a Catholic. That's, isn't that right? So both that's- Both her parents were. Okay, both of her parents were. Okay. Okay. All right. So she was raised the, as a Catholic. Um, now, you mentioned a couple of times the Middle Way. So both her father and her brother were attempting to have this Middle Way and the intersection of politics and religion seems to have been really playing out, especially in Wilhelm's reign, with um, the requirements from Charles V. So it's always a messier story than we think. And I do just want to put that out there. Um, because we see Anna often linked to Elizabeth I, especially in the reign of Mary I, right? So when she's still Lady Elizabeth, um, getting in trouble for not going to Mass, as you mentioned. And and I think some people think, oh, then she was a Protestant or a Lutheran all along. And it's just a little more complicated than that. Well, I think we have to think about human behavior in general. I mean, there's plenty <laughs> of people running around now who are Catholics or Protestants or Evangelicals. But again, it comes down to what's the quality of that of that devotion. And I'm not meaning mm -hmm. to discourage anyone, but you can be a Catholic and not go to Mass every Sunday. Right, right. Uh, but Mary Tudor, Mary the First, did not feel that way. 
Correct. So, yes. <laughs> so I think I think that's what 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 I guess what I didn't say very well, and what I'm meaning is that may be about Mary more than it was about Anna or even Elizabeth. The notion yes. that this is how you're supposed to live because this is how you're supposed to believe. So I I just want to look at that, and as you say, she may have had different ideas and that doesn't necessarily put her into a camp. That means she's a a complicated woman with a range of ideas, which I don't think we always uh, give her credit for. Now let's turn to some really good news, which is that you have a book coming out later this year. If you were to give us one teaser for your book that's coming out this year. One, I can't wait for that. Is there one thing that we can really be looking for when your book comes out? Given the pandemic that we are still going through, or at least feeling the effects of, one of Anna's nieces or nephews died of smallpox. And I found an extremely detailed report of exactly what happened to him each day during his illness with smallpox. And what I think is fascinating about it and what I think, or I hope the readers will gain from it is how they treated disease back then and how fortunate we are, despite the horrors of what we're living through now, that we are alive right now and that we have medicine the way that we do. Oh, that's great. Okay. That's wonderful. So we can really get a glimpse into what it was like then as we see this young man. Okay. That's wonderful. All right. That, so that's something we can all look forward to and look for coming up. Let me ask you another sort of takeaway kind of question. If Um, you were to have people remember one new thing about Anna herself. Um, if there's one thing you'd really like us to take away from this conversation, what would that be? That she was a political refugee in England. Oh, okay. Political refugee. I like the way you say that. Can you, can you tease that out just a little bit? And I do want to have people... Um, go to your work and look at it and read your book. So, you know, not a spoiler completely, but um, can you tell us just a little more about that to help us really get to know her as this more complex person? Yes. So the the real reason or what my research leads me to believe to be the real reason and the reason that makes the most sense is that Anna was not ugly. The, uh, all the documentation that we have about Henry not being attracted to her was used to support the annulment and to support the idea of non-consummation because if they would have consummated the marriage, it would have been a divorce, which was a whole different problem. Mm-hmm. So that's the first, the first thing to keep in mind. But what was actually going on in the background is her brother was getting closer and closer and closer to having a devastating war with the Holy Roman Emperor. And her brother had gone behind Henry VIII's back and made these other political alliances without talking to Henry VIII. And so at the time that their marriage was annulled, and even by the time Anna landed on English soil, it was known that in, in, on the continent that her brother was very, was effectively at this point having a cold war with the Holy Roman Emperor before the Cleves War breaks out in 1543. And 
a lot of her train went home immediately for fear of something bad happening to them on the way back to Germany. And so when the annulment happens, Anna cannot go home. She, Henry, I would assume, didn't want to be responsible for sending her through hostile territory. And Wilhelm probably didn't have the resources at that point or was afraid to bring his sister back through hostile territory. And I think that as much as we like to say in the 21st century what an awful human being Henry VIII was, I cannot fully agree with that. Because when we look at Anna, he provides her with somewhere to live. Mm -hmm. He provides her with income. And he keeps her safe. Now, that doesn't mean it was easy for her in England. Right, right. But, and he does give her an option to become a denizen of England, which she does do, I believe, in early 15, it's either 1541 or 1542. Right. So Anna was very much a political refugee in England, at least for probably the first five years that she was there after the annulment. Okay, okay. And I do think if you want to look at, you know, what Henry was able to do for her, keep her safe, give her these properties. And one of the things I spoke with um, Dr. Owen Emerson, who is the curator at Hever Castle, is her time there. And uh, he has records there that indicate she loved to cook at Hever Castle. Yes. And so don't you, I mean, I just love to think of that, that she had this, this place. I mean, not that it was easy, like you said, but she did have a place and she was interested in cooking and she loved to cook at Heber Castle. And there, there are things that you can think about. Oh, that's a nice thing that, that would have been at least a nice moment. Right. Absolutely. And she, that's very German of her. So as a German Mm -hmm. woman, she Mm -hmm. would have been trained how to take care of her household, including cooking. Right. So she held on to a lot of her cultural upbringing while she was in England after after her marriage to Henry. And she went hunting. Mm-hmm. Her brother sent her some, uh, I think, some falcons. And she sent him and his new bride some hunting dogs. So she, her life wasn't miserable. She had it pretty good. It wasn't perfect. And of course, right. there were a lot of difficulties for her under Edward VI. But yes. I think Henry did his best. Yes, I, I think during Henry's lifetime, she had moments where she had some really nice opportunities. I just want to remind people they can find you on especially Twitter and Instagram on, make sure I get these right. On Twitter, it's at HR Darcy History. On Instagram, it's at H Darcy History. And in both cases, Darcy is D A R S I E. Again, this will all be in the show notes. And then the website is maidensandmanuscripts.com. So, and we are looking forward to the book coming out soon. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. So thank you so much for joining us and giving us some insight into the family and the early life of Anna of Cleves from her actual birth date on and helping us get to know the woman that we don't know, and especially from the German perspective, that really enriches our understanding of this very lovely woman who came to England and got caught up in a difficult situation. So she was she was fascinating and wonderful and complicated, just like we all are. So thank you so much, Heather. I really appreciate your joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So many thanks to Heather Darcy for taking us into the family life 
of Anna of Cleves and opening our eyes a little bit to some of the perspective offered by the German records. And thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your listening. I would love it if you would subscribe and leave a rating and maybe share with a friend. And please consider joining our patron family. Till next week, let's keep shaking up history together.